Welcome to part six of The Road to LA 84, our multi-episode retrospective on the 40th anniversary of a seminal moment in a golden era of marathoning. We're telling the behind-the-scenes account of the athletes, the training, and the build-up races. This week, we rewind to the 1983 New York City Marathon, site of one of the most thrilling finishes ever seen in sports a race we've been so excited to relive with you. 40 years later, here's the story of New York 1983 on mile 161 of Seconds Flat. This is the Seconds Flat Running Podcast. He's broken three times. He refuses to give in. He might do it. Look at that guy. Look at Blake Shiro. Oh, my gosh. Warmth and stillness enveloped Munich, Germany before dawn on September 5th, 1972. Brawny, skilled, and graceful athletes filtered in and out of the athletes' village at the games of the 20th Olympiad. Many spent the night celebrating their performances with well-earned beer garden debauchery. Security was light for such a high-profile event, as Germans feared repeating the militaristic image of Hitler's 1936 Aryan Games in Berlin. Around 4 a.m., eight men in tracksuits entered the village and unzipped their duffel bags. But those bags were empty of socks, spikes, or uniforms. The men opened their sacks and removed rifles and grenades. The eight were members of the Palestinian militant organization Black September they quietly and tactfully moved toward the Israeli athletes' housing. Just beyond 4.30 a.m., the commandos stormed the room. The world watched live via television as a hostage crisis unfolded. An ominous, haunting image of a mysterious terrorist shrouded in a balaclava and carrying an AK-47 became the lasting image of the Munich Olympics. After failed negotiations and rescue attempts, TV viewers learned the situation's horrifying outcome early on the morning of September 6. ABC's Jim McKay broke the news with a delicate balance of raw emotion and artfully crafted extemporaneous prose. When I was a kid, my father used to say our greatest hopes and our greatest fears are seldom realized. Our worst fears have been realized tonight. They have now said there were 11 hostages. Two were killed in their rooms yesterday morning. Nine were killed at the airport tonight. They're all gone. Many of the stars of distance running from the 72 Olympics had settled into retirement or faded into relative obscurity by late October 1983. Frank Shorter, Kenny Moore, Ron Hill, Derek Clayton, lions of marathoning who were all far past their athletic peaks 11 years later. But one medalist from Munich had transitioned to an ascendant road racing career, Rod Dixon. At Munich, Dixon was New Zealand's young gun, a 22-year-old miler with a lethal kick. He carried the torch of Kiwi greats passed down from Peter Snell. Dixon and the New Zealand contingent stayed in the athlete's village housing adjacent to Israel's team. 
the intimate details of September 5th, 1972, and Dixon's acute proximity to the violence have troubled him for over 50 years. A day after the tragedy, Rod Dixon qualified out of his 1500 meters heat. Then he raced his way to bronze in Munich from the far outside starting position. He sported the all black New Zealand kit, blue Adidas spikes, white crew socks, and precisely trimmed mutton chops, a facial hair precursor to the mustache he made famous in later years. His legs were lean and angular, a sharp contrast to the powerful limbs we saw a decade later. An upstart who had just broken the four-minute mile barrier for the first time in January 72, Rod quickly positioned himself on the outside of lane one, just behind the leaders, and remained there until a frantic scramble near halfway forced him wide. He responded with savvy beyond his years, moving on to the rail and within striking distance for the bell lap. With 100 meters to go, he swung wide, comfortably moved into third, and peeked to both sides before celebrating as he neared the line. Dixon improved his time on home soil at the 1974 Commonwealth Games, running what was then the fifth fastest 1,500 meters in history. Unfortunately for Rod, he finished one spot outside the medals while his countryman John Walker set a new Kiwi record. It was time to move up to the 5,000 meters, a race many critics thought Dixon was built for given his cross-country success as a young runner. He took to the three-plus-mile distance well, ranking first in the world in 1975, according to track and field news. However, the 76 Montreal Olympics were a calm games repeat. The uniform was the same as Munich. So was the late lap positioning. The hair was still flowing too, but the end result looked like 1974, not 1972. The strategy of taking the lead with 300 meters to go and forcing competitors outside failed. It became a sit-and-kick affair, and Dixon was the one pushed wide. In a blanket finish, Dixon was left out of the medals in fourth. Like his good friend Steve Prefontaine four years earlier, Rod Dixon, despite fearless racing and supreme confidence through 4,600 meters, missed the podium while gaining fans. Also much like Cree, Sports Illustrated labeled Dixon a hard-working and hard-partying and hard-as-nails competitor. Jaded by New Zealand's boycott of the 1980 Moscow Olympics, which stole his opportunity to make amends for 76, Dixon shifted his attention to the grass and roads. When Rod Dixon's Saucony shoes touched asphalt, magic happened. He relocated to Pennsylvania and crushed the American road scene. At the Adamstown 10K in August 1980, Rod cruised to victory. The grand prize? His weight in beer. At the urging of a few friendly locals, Dixon wore a jacket full of buckshot to the post-race weigh-in and collected over 20 gallons of Adamstown's finest legal beverage. Rod Dixon is one of our sport's most colorful wordsmiths, and the Adamstown jackpot fit nicely with perhaps his most memorable quote, all I want to do is drink beer and train like an animal. Falmouth, Philly Half, Freedom Trail, Beta Breakers, he won them all and more. Cross-country was Dixon's tool for further development as a roadrunner. It gives me the basis for everything I do, he said, offering advice that might benefit some of today's runners. While sick, he finished 10th at the 1981 World Cross-Country Championships. Then he medaled at World Cross 82 in Rome, finishing third, just one spot behind Alberto Salazar. Serendipitously, 
New York City Marathon race director Fred LeBeau traveled to Italy as well. Pre-race LeBeau exhorted Dixon to run New York. Dixon demurred, but offered a compromise. If he made the podium at World Cross, he'd go to New York. As Dixon charged toward the finishing chute, LeBeau anxiously waited just steps beyond the line, wanting a guarantee that the newly minted bronze medalist would race the five boroughs. Rod Dixon agreed to watch the 82 marathon in person, where he saw Alberto Salazar outduel Rodolfo Gomez. Soon after, he signed on for New York 83. After Rome, Dixon returned to his homeland for a low-key marathon debut in Auckland. He won in 211, then took a 10K in Philadelphia the next weekend. Ten road races later, the calendar flipped to 1983, and Rod Dixon sharpened his sights on New York. Caucusing with his brother John 11 months out from New York, Rod was told, you have to immerse yourself in the most consistent training you've ever done in your life. You're not to be distracted. You've got to be focused. And so he retreated to the rolling hills of Pennsylvania Amish country for long Sunday runs up to two hours, 45 minutes. One of the Amish farmers came to know Dixon's routes and timing and left water at the gate of his property each week. In return, Dixon later presented him a New York City Marathon finisher's medal. Other than the extended long runs, Dixon's training looked quite similar to what he did for cross country and road season. He worked hills, ran speed sessions, raced distances between 10K and 10 miles at least once a month, and each week clocked a total training time roughly translating to between 100 and 110 miles. Don't race in training and don't train in races, Dixon implored. As we've discovered in the first five episodes of this series, that training framework shares elements with legends Bill Rogers, Rob DiCostella, Alberto Salazar, and Greg Meyer. Our contemporary marathon greats like Kipchoge and Kiptum typically run many more and longer sessions around marathon and half marathon paces, whereas the world's best in the early 80s did more speed work at 5K pace or faster. Might this inform best practices for the future? Is it possible either road leads to the mountaintop? Or perhaps each is an extreme pendulum swing and more work just inside the severe domain could produce even greater results? These are among the fascinating questions for athletes and coaches in the next 40 years of marathoning. But for certain, we know Rod Dixon's brother advanced the most sage training advice. You have to immerse yourself in the most consistent training you've ever done in your life. As a final tune-up before New York, Dixon planned a one-mile time trial. His hope? Feel smooth while running fast despite the demands of marathon training. Rod ran without a watch, but had a friend taking splits. After the mile and before cooling down, Dixon's friend asked Rod to guess his total time. I don't know, but I felt very powerful tonight, so maybe I was close to four minutes, Dixon replied. The watch read 358.7. Rod Dixon knew he was ready. Low clouds and drizzle blanketed Staten Island early on October 23, 1983. The kings of the road crept up to the start line and prepared to climb the Verrazano Bridge. The only missing piece was three-time defending champion Alberto Salazar. He skipped New York 83 and the chance to match Bill Rogers as a four-time champ. In an interview with ABC Sports, Salazar admitted his tumultuous year was the product of stress, sickness, overtraining, and lacking sufficient rest. Jim McKay, 
the announcer who shepherded millions through the uncertain moments of the Munich hostage crisis led ABC's coverage. In a bitter symmetry, New York 83 took place the same morning as the Beirut barracks suicide attacks. 307 were killed, including 241 American servicemen. New York is a city of restless feet, a hurrying town, a running town. McKay opened before introducing co-host and former star miler Marty LaCorey. LaCorey immediately mentioned the lack of a heavy favorite in Salazar's absence. While true, that comment overlooked Rod Dixon's unparalleled track, road, and cross-country bona fides. LaCorey closed the segment declaring, the winner of the race today will have to run the race of his life. Those words proved prescient. A group of six took early command among the field of 17,000 heading into Brooklyn. When Rod Dixon first appeared on network footage, he ran alongside American Ron Tab in the second pack. Blue shorts, white sockany top, white knit gloves, and a tuft of hair on his upper lip that would have fit in neatly alongside Tom Selleck on the era's top-ranked primetime drama Magnum P.I., he continued hanging back from the leaders who went through five miles on 204 pace, significantly faster than world record clip. One legitimate contender took the bait. Tanzania's Gidimis Shahanga, 1982 Commonwealth Games champ at 10,000 meters, was in the group of six. He held serve alongside Ireland's Desmond O'Connor as others faded. But Jeff Smith, who ran in the 1980 Olympics before returning to school at Providence, bridged the gap. As the rain intensified, Shahanga made a breakaway. 15K in and nearing Queens, Shahanga was alone by 50-plus meters. One hour, three minutes, 12 seconds. Halfway to the Central Park finish, halfway to the most dramatic marathon finish a live television audience had ever seen. Shahanga's lead evaporated. He held only a seven-second margin on Jeff Smith. Still a senior at Providence, Smith was a day shy of 30. Before university, he spent a decade as a firefighter in the United Kingdom. Now, in his marathon debut, he surged toward the lead. Smith had a bouncy stride and wide arm carriage. It all felt so good. I just seemed able to float away, Smith later told Sports Illustrated. Marty LaCorey hypothesized that Smith's track background affected his mental approach. Beyond halfway feels like time to move on the track. Smith had done just that in clocking a 355 mile in Wales the previous year. But this was the marathon, a different beast. Halfway to Central Park was just the beginning of the action. Across the Queensboro Bridge, Jeff Smith grabbed the lead from Shahanga. The chase pack stayed cautious. As the leaders dashed down First Avenue in Manhattan, LaCorey asserted, Someone like Ron Tab or Rod Dixon can come out looking like a genius today. They played the long game, but how much longer could they wait? At mile 17, Jim McKay first noted that Smith appeared to be laboring. However, the second group frayed, and those remaining had significant ground to gain. Smith regrouped and hammered a 445 mile, then a 428 mile. Shahanga waned. Beyond mile 19, the leaderboard featured Rod Dixon for the first time. Far removed from the TV cameras and the lead vehicles, he had risen to third place. Earlier, out of view, Dixon slipped on a wet road marker in the eighth mile. With an even temper, 
and remarkable mental resilience, he transitioned to a choppier stride when a less experienced runner might have panicked. While moving at near five-minute mile pace, Dixon massaged his right hamstring and found some measure of relief. Ten miles later, he was back in the race. One hour, 36 minutes, 55 seconds. 20 miles. Into the Bronx, then back to Manhattan. The metaphorical halfway point of the marathon. Fatigue sets in. Tired muscles sting with each pounding step. Jeff Smith looked disheveled but maintained course record tempo. Rod Dixon surged into second and appeared on screen grabbing at his hamstring. Then he grabbed again, and a third time. The injury looked potentially crippling, but in an interview recorded days before the race, Dixon acknowledged there will be periods of pain or discomfort in a 26.2-mile race. Staying calm, even, and knowing you can flow out of those moments is key. Yet he trailed by 23 seconds and exhibited wobbly mechanics. Then Smith's hamstrings tightened and began failing him as well. Two wounded warriors, shown side by side via television split screen, were locked in a battle of attrition with less than 10K to go. Fans under umbrellas darted across Fifth Avenue as the action neared Central Park. Dixon came within view over Smith's left shoulder. Jim McKay and Marty LaCory had referenced Smith's deteriorating form for several miles, but the tenor darkened. I think the demons are starting to get in his head now, LaCory asserted. Smith turned into Central Park with Dixon in relentless pursuit. The lead shrunk to 14 seconds. Dixon feared he lacked enough time to mount a serious challenge. Certainly, his body lacked the power to accelerate the pace. So he leaned into his experience and mental preparation. Meanwhile, Smith made a key tactical error. Amid the brain fog of fatigue and spasming muscles, he meandered near the blue line mid-course. Dixon ran the tangents, cutting straight lines over the serpentine park roads. Rod Dixon's chassis couldn't sustain a late surge, so he created time by running a shorter race than Smith. Jeff Smith's splits faded. 5.07, then 5.17. His poker face melted away, replaced by grimaces, huffs and puffs. Crowds swelled. Their roar intensified in concert with the rain showers. Viewers felt the collective tension through their TV screens. Even as Smith plateaued, Dixon couldn't make a bigger dent in the lead through mile 24. Marty LaCorey started quieting his own doubts and Jim McKay spoke of Smith's impending global celebrity if he could hang on for the win. Two hours, two minutes, 43 seconds, mile 25. If Jeff Smith can finish, it looks like he will win the New York City Marathon, Jim McKay told his national audience. LaCorey echoed the sentiment. Jim, I think that Rod Dixon is not going to make a big charge now over this last mile. Almost as soon as that discussion ended, Jeff Smith stumbled. In a heavyweight title bout between man and course, Central Park landed a crushing blow. A few dozen meters back, Rod Dixon continued punching. They were sharing the screen at last. Dixon close enough to see Smith falter, but perhaps without enough time to do anything about it. Up a slight incline at 25.5 miles, Smith looked down, trudging. Dixon pumped his arms. 
eyes locked on the back of his adversary's tri-colored baby blue, navy blue, and white Adidas singlet. Better the hunter than the hunted, Dixon said, adding, I could feel myself gaining as we came into the park for the last time. With a half mile to go, LaCorey exclaimed, Dixon is closing. He's less than 10 seconds back. McKay interjected. He's now down to eight seconds. Then Smith stumbled a second time. We may see the greatest finish in the history of marathoning, McKay shouted at the 26-mile mark. His voice rose with each subsequent syllable. Dixon drew even at two hours and eight minutes. The men were never next to each other. Dixon straddled the inside line, and when Smith finally saw him, it was too late. Rod Dixon dropped the hammer for the final minute, saying afterward, when I moved past him and he didn't respond, that gave me a lift. As Dixon broke the tape, Jim McKay, channeling every race fan's thoughts, opined, where he found the strength, I cannot imagine. Two hours, eight minutes, 59 seconds. Rod Dixon knelt just beyond the finish line, hands held high to the heavens, champion of the 1983 New York City Marathon. Joining Greg Meyer, Dixon was the second man ever to run a sub-four mile and a sub-209 marathon. He kissed the wet pavement. Jeff Smith wobbled in at 209.08, then collapsed to the ground. Next, cameras caught the iconic image of Dixon celebrating, rain-soaked, eyes to the sky, tears streaming down his face, kissing his hands, then reaching to the clouds, while unknowingly towering over Smith, who writhed in pain behind him. The photograph became synonymous with the thrill of marathon victory and the agony of defeat. The full-page spread ran in the next edition of Runner's World. It was the centerpiece of a Saucony ad campaign built around their star runner. ABC reporter Jim Lampley spoke with Dixon minutes after the finish while emotions flowed. Never at a loss for words, Rod quipped, the miler's kick does the trick. He continued, I couldn't believe it was happening. And the more I knew it was happening, I said, my God, I dreamed this would happen. Referencing Rob DiCostella's come from behind wind at the 1982 Commonwealth Games Marathon in Brisbane, Rod told Lampley, I just had to run Rod Dixon's race. Jeff Benjamin wrote that New York 1983 changed running forever. Rod Dixon had executed what he called the perfect race. He had run the race of his life, as Marty LaCorey prognosticated earlier that morning. This was the hardest thing I'll ever do in my life, Jeff Smith surmised. Both Dixon and Smith placed themselves in the first tier of contenders for Los Angeles 1984. The field of challengers had mushroomed through 1983. Now eight months out from the Olympics, at least a dozen men envisioned themselves atop the podium, winning gold, listening to their national anthem. We'll continue following their journey on part seven of the Road to LA 84, right here on Seconds Flat.